0: A night watchman's body is found hung from the ceiling of a steel mill bathroom. Investigation reveals that what is at first assumed to be a suicide may be something more. We'll examine this unsolved mystery in Episode 13, The Washroom Murder. This episode is first in a loose trilogy of episodes. When I was doing the research on this one, I discovered it had been linked, albeit tenuously, to another murder that I was planning on covering. And then, when I was researching that second murder, then that, in turn, I soon found was at least initially believed to have been connected to a third case I was planning to cover eventually. So, I just decided to put them all together because they're, like, thematically kind of linked to each other. I don't think the three episodes will be sequential, though. By the time this one makes it out, the next will likely be a Halloween episode, then followed by the other two. I don't think that should matter too much, though, because I mean, the cases weren't actually connected at all, and the links were extremely tenuous anyway. It's not like you'll need to remember the details of one of these cases in order to understand the others. Now. That explanation out of the way, on with the story. At about 7 a.m. on the morning of February 18th, 1932, the foreman of the Werner Company Iron Foundry in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, a man named Harry Long, was making his morning rounds when he found something that shocked him. The body of 45-year-old Samuel Forty, night watchman at the foundry, hanging in the locker room. He had been severely beaten and hung from a makeshift gallows, his feet nearly touching the floor of the room. Forty and his wife, Josephine, were parents to ten children. His actual name was Salvatore Feldi, but similarly to Albert Shinsky of a few episodes ago, I'll use the name that the newspapers used to refer to him. initial investigation revealed that Forti had been struck from behind by some blunt instrument, and had been beaten about the head and face, implying that some sort of fight had probably taken place prior to death. Then a board was placed between some of the lockers, and a noose was suspended from that, making a sort of makeshift gibbet or scaffold. Both arms and legs were bound, the arms with strips of cloth which looked like they had been ripped off of a jacket, and the feet by a leather belt, and forty was hung from the hastily assembled contraption. The noose was made of not rope, but a thin cord, similar to that found on drawstring blinds, although presumably a bit more sturdy than that. It was also tied with a lock, or a half-blood knot, which was a type of knot that's often used by fishermen. Dr. John C. Simpson, who examined the body, stated that to the best of his estimation, 40 had likely only been dead a short time before long discovered his body. Although nothing in the foundry had apparently been disturbed, and an iron foundry is a somewhat unusual place to rob at any rate, the police were initially operating under an assumption that the watchman had thwarted a robbery and been killed for his troubles. Lansdale Police Chief Samuel Wolfenden noted that all the windows of the foundry were unlocked and anyone could have entered the place. On three occasions during the week, efforts were made by someone to break into the foundry. But here he differed with the prevailing opinion, stating that I do not believe it was for the purpose of robbery. Each time, Forty blocked the attempt. Of these attempts by someone to gain entry, Entry, foundry employee William Herman stated that all three took place on the same night, and all were carried out by the same individual, a man who was, he said, tall and thin and middle-aged. He wore workers' clothes and a dark coat. The first time, the man said that his wife was having a child, and that he wanted to use the telephone to call a doctor. Forty allowed him in, and no less than five separate phone calls were made. The man left, but then he returned some time later with some other unspecified excuse for why he needed to enter. This time he was turned away. And stubbornly he returned again, this time telling Forty that it was his own wife, Josephine, who was sick. Forty and the man got in a shouting match, the mysterious visitor shouting, I'll fix you for this. I would presume the goal the third time was to get the security guard out of the plant so that entry could be gained. But even after this third time, said Herman, someone continued to prowl around the foundry with a flashlight around midnight. Presumably this was the same man again. Police were seeking this mysterious thin man. However, other employees noted that Forty had begun acting oddly after that, wiring the door of the locker room shut at night. On a few occasions, the other employees had been obliged to wait for the guards to unfasten the door in the morning so that they could enter the room. Long, the foreman, also backed up the statements made by the others and noted that Forty was was afraid to leave the building at night and stayed in the locker room much of the time. He was quite agitated whenever Long spoke to him. The autopsy was conducted later that afternoon, and the results, unsurprisingly, were that Forty had died of strangulation. He had not been killed by either the beating or the initial blunt force trauma. This conflicts with other statements that Forty was likely dead before he was hung. That might be accounted for as two separate doctors were mentioned, Simpson and another coroner from Norristown, Ronald H. Detray. Possibly there was some disagreement between Smith and Dettray. By the next day, police had questioned some of Forty's family, including two of his sons, Charles and Joseph. This questioning revealed an odd fact. Forty had been a member for seven years of what was termed a cult. The Watchmen had been a member of the organization since 1925. There were five other members of the same cult in Lansdale, and three of those were questioned. Two could not be found. Another account states that Forty met on the weekends with seven individuals, five men and two women, for religious discussion. It appeared later that Forty had allowed a fellow cult member to make a call from the foundry on February 16th, but not to make a second call. Now, I'm not sure if this was referring to the mysterious thin man or not. Another member applied to the foundry as as a watchman as well. These two individuals, coincidentally, also seemed to be the two that could not be accounted for during questioning. Chief Wolfenden stated that an Italian translation of the Bible had been given to Forty by the cult, and he usually kept this in a locker at the foundry. However, no Bible was found at the scene, and it was believed that his slayers had taken it. It was later found in Forty's home, but a police interpreter who looked over it declared that it contained nothing beyond the text that would be expected. Wolfenden stated of the cult members' questioned, "...all I could learn from them is that faith healing is one of the principles. None of the members could take medicine in any form, regardless of the nature of their illness." Statements by his family indicated that the sect was called the Chiesa Christiana Della Fide Apostolica, or the Church of Christ of Faith and Apostles. The cult was supposedly a national organization. Joseph Forty, son of the murdered man, said that from what he knew, the cult was in no way fanatical. They are just like we are, only they don't believe in smoking and gambling and they pray a lot and also that despite assertions, faith healing was not part of the beliefs. They take medicine when they get sick. Dad got a cold once, and he took medicine. He further added his opinion on the Slayer, saying that, I believe whoever murdered Dad had a grudge against him or was jealous. It was said that Forty intended to withdraw from the religious sect, and the other members that were questioned stated that they felt that turning her back on the cult was tantamount to eternal damnation. Was an intention to leave enough of a grudge? Another of the children, 16-year-old Sonny Forty, said that he was at the foundry with his father until 10 p.m. the night of the murder. Dad wanted me to bring his lunch down to the plant, he said. He was afraid after that man tried to get in. When I went down, he was joking and laughing. He didn't appear to be nervous. I sat with him in the locker room, and he ate part of his lunch with me. He saved the rest for later. Then I came home. The rest of that lunch, it appeared, was being eaten when he was killed. The boy continued, saying that one night recently, his father had come home from work early, and asked his mother if any strangers had come by the house. When Josephine answered in the negative and inquired why he asked, he answered, I just wondered, don't worry. Sonny said he had been at the plant with his father every night that week until about midnight. His father was worried because of the stranger, he said. Soon enough, Chief Wolfenden revealed that the leaving the cult angle, the family revealed, was being pursued in the slang. The murderer may have feared Forty was about to resign from the cult and rejoin his regular church. Police were also still pursuing this thin man who had appeared at the foundry. By February 20th, Chief Wolfenden claimed to have identified the culprit. We will arrest him at the proper time, he said. This may not be for several days because there are certain angles of this murder we wish to clear up before taking action. He said that Forty had been slain while kneeling and praying in the company of two other cult members, possibly referring to the ones that could not be tracked down. Several days, he says, or years or, at the risk of spoiling the story, ever. However, investigations into the cult revealed that shortly before Forty was slain, the meeting place they used was moved to the home of another member. There seemed to be some jealousy between Forty and another member. Was this the jealousy that Joseph was referring to? Josephine came forward on February 22nd, and revealed to investigators that she had been arguing with her husband in the past six months or so, angry at his numerous visits to the home of one of the other members, Julio DeSantis. She felt that Forty had been having an affair with the wife, Mary DeSantis. She also said that another member of the cult, Dominic DeLuca, refused to hold meetings at his home due to the undue attentions Forty had also paid to his wife. He would often appear at De Luca's home as well. He told me he was going there to pray, she said, but many times his friend was not at home, but his wife was. He always told me he was going there to pray. That was not the only reason. Dominic Luca was a close friend of Forty and called the watchman a brother. Mrs. DeLuca, for her part, denied any affair. The police's elaborate tale of cult murder, likely fueled by the hex hysteria sweeping Pennsylvania in the late 1920s and early 1930s, was swiftly unraveling in favor of a run-of-the-mill, almost depressingly commonplace one. Mrs. Forty also confirmed some of the investigators' suspicions, stating that his life was threatened due to his intentions to leave the cult. One of the members told him, you've put your foot here and here you must die. There was a woman present when the member first told him this. I knew about all this several weeks ago, several weeks later, when my husband told me about it. Given her suspicions of infidelity, you could alternately interpret the statement of that other member in the presence of the woman in question as being a confrontation of 40 with it, telling him, basically, I know what you're up to. Son Charles, 21, said that the week before his death, he had not attended any of the meetings of the group. Wolfenden reworked his previous statement and said he intended to arrest two men for the murder of the watchman, the husband and son of the woman he had apparently been having an affair with. While Dominic DeLuca seemed to be a plausible suspect for the murder, on February 24th he strolled into police headquarters and announced that he, too, was in fear of his life. His visit was meant to give some light on the murder of Forty, and to express the fear that he might be marked for a similar fate. I suppose that in hindsight, we can wonder if this was an attempt to steer the police back toward a caught murder angle, and away from the jealousy angle. But, if so, DeLuca went to extraordinary lengths, even going so far as to write out a will at the police station. An inquest into the death was held on February 24th and 25th, but it was unable to come to a clear conclusion. Several of the witnesses gave contradictory testimony, and although determining for certain that it was strangulation which had killed Forty, the jury was unable to decide whether Forty committed suicide or was actually a murder victim, as was believed by many. While Chief Wolfenden clung to murder, Pennsylvania State Police Sergeant Earl Hans and Montgomery County Detective James G. Gleason both felt that it was easily possible for Forty to have committed suicide. They returned an open verdict of no decision. Forty's religious background did not enter the testimony at the inquest at all. Chief Wolfenden turned up his nose at the findings, stating that he would continue his investigation. The coroner and the district attorney, he said, wanted a verdict of suicide because they could not solve the case. The district attorney, Stuart Nace, said that he had no opinions as to whether this was a case of murder or suicide. He also threw Wolfenden's investigation under the bus, so to speak, noting that "...we found no photographs had been taken of the position of the body or of the belt around the feet or the tallying around the hands. No fingerprints had been taken off the rope or off the board from which the rope was hanging or the lockers across which the board had been placed." The belt was in the possession of the Lansdale police. It was then too late to take fingerprints because it had been handled. This office desired to lend every available assistance to the local police, but it is impossible to do so after the evidence has been destroyed. We do not feel we should enter this case, but we'll leave it to the local police, as apparently was their desire. After after District Attorney Nace spoke out, Wolfenden fired back I never saw anything like this. They certainly tried hard enough to get a suicide verdict, but I, for one, am not afraid to be licked if I find I cannot solve the crime. Mrs. Forty had filed a claim with the state compensation board in order to try to receive some recompense for her husband's death, as it had occurred while he was at work. T.D. Just was the referee, who would hear her case in a few months' time. Josephine would be able to collect benefits if it was judged that her husband had died while undertaking his job, but compensation would be denied in the case of suicide. The disastrous inquest, with its infighting and eventual lack of decision, didn't help matters any, and just was placed in the unenviable position of trying to determine Forty's cause of death when an investigation via the proper channels had failed. While the lawyers for the Werner Company maintained that Forty had committed suicide, and thus payment to Josephine was unwarranted, referee T.D. Just decided to declare a temporary hold on judgment, as Chief Wolfenden doggedly, some might say stubbornly, pursued his investigation. Finally, referee Just rendered his decision. He believed that Forty was murdered, Agreeing with Wolfenden and going so far as to call the coroner's decision farcical. But in the end, he fell back on his labor lawyer roots. Saying that since Forty was on lunch at the time of whatever had happened, compensation was denied. Wolfenden continued his investigation into the next year, And in May 1933, Mrs. Forty filed an appeal with a compensation board citing new evidence that her husband had been murdered. The new evidence consisted of a statement by one of the boys, presumably Sonny, that he had seen a stack of boxes outside the foundry window offering a way for the murderer to gain entry. And a co-worker of Forty's, Christopher Torsivia, stated that he had seen a confrontation between the watchman and an unknown visitor the mysterious Thin Man. But, still the ruling was upheld. Wolfenden, however, had his own problems. He opposed a bill going before the state legislature, which would make it mandatory for police to allow a suspect to obtain legal counsel. In 1934, he was attacked by an insane man, and Officer Charles O'Hara subdued the attacker and saved the chief. However, Wolfenden was forced to resign in 1937 when that self-same Charles O'Hara brought a charge of intimidation against him. The other two police officers resigned then, and O'Hara remained as the only officer in Lansdale until Wolfenden was reinstated, which was the next day. so. So the 40 case fell into the dustbin of cold cases, and though it seems most likely to have indeed been murder, the murderer or murderers, were never caught. And as to the cult, in my opinion, it was likely nothing of the kind. An organization of a similar name, the Church of Christ of Faith and Apostles, is in existence today still, as merely an arm of the apostolic denomination. Far from a hooded and robed cultist chanting in an incense-filled room, forty supposed cult was likely nothing more than a traditional church, although possibly one new to the area. Keep in mind that when his Italian Bible, thought to be a central cult text, was examined, police found nothing more than a copy of the Bible. But to segue into the next part of our trilogy, on February 22, 1932, in the midst of the Forty investigation, Chief Wolfenden had received a letter from a Wilmington, Delaware attorney, by the name of Linwood Chandler. Chandler provided a list of names of people suspected in the slaying of Norman Bechtel of Philadelphia. Norman Bechtel was a church worker who was found stabbed to death in a car in the Germantown section of Philadelphia just over a month before. So why was Wolfenden receiving a letter about this murder? Bechtel had been attending a church meeting in Lansdale only a few hours before his death. An extremely loose connection, but anyway, part two of this loosely-allied trilogy, due in two weeks, will be about the Bechtel murder. And that's the end of this episode. A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77, lowercase f, lowercase d, all one word, at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so until next time, this is Andrew signing off.